Hey folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. I'm Taylor Ramaj, I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is one of many projects of Proyecto Encuentros de Gracia y Bienvenida, an LGBTQ ministry in the United Church of Christ. I wanted to let you all know about a virtual Christmas event that Proyecto is organizing. Posadas Navideñas is an ecumenical musical Christmas service. There will be lots of singing and words of hope, and it'll just be a great time of being in community together. It's a free event, so all you have to do is head to UCC Proyecto Bienvenida on Facebook and click on the events tab. You'll see the registration link, and it takes just a couple minutes to register. I love hearing from listeners, and I'm so happy to have received this note from my friend Joe, who's been listening to the show ever since we started. Joe says, I am so blessed to call Taylor my friend. She's one of the most motivated and inspiring people I know. Love listening to this podcast and learning about her guest's passion for God. Growing up in a strict conservative Christian household sheltered me and instilled less than open perspectives that I've only recently begun to challenge. Hearing the guests' different experiences and love for God gives me that nudge I need to grow my relationship with Him. Thanks, Taylor, and all your guests. Thanks so much for writing, Joe. If you're listening to this and you want to send a comment, you can email encuentroslatinx at gmail.com with an S after the X at the end of Latinx. You can also go to Apple Podcasts and leave your comments and ratings there. That really helps us out for visibility. And Joe is right. This podcast wouldn't be what it is without our amazing guests. Today, I'm very excited to bring you Alejandra Caraballo, who is just a powerhouse in terms of her background and all the amazing work she's doing, including her recent decision to run for a local political office in New York City. I had the privilege of connecting with her at Creating Change back in January, and it was great to catch up with her again. We chat about the mountains in Puerto Rico, hardcore music, leaving religion, and how she's found community and purpose, knowing that we are but specks in an expansive universe. Let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for joining me on our show today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? I'm Alejandra Caraballo. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from, your Latinx heritage? My family comes from Puerto Rico, which is part of the United States. It's a colonized territory of the United States. What's a good memory that you have about Puerto Rico? Um, I'm Puerto Rican too. I think we, when we met actually uh, back in January, which was like 10 years ago, we had a little conversation about that. Did you, so you've gotten to visit there? Did you live there at all? So I never lived there. Um, I grew up pretty much every summer going back to Puerto Rico. So I actually grew up in Florida and Tampa, which is where my parents ended up uh, settling. 
but uh, I would go every summer to visit my grandparents. Uh, and so I'd spend usually a month uh, on my summer vacations uh, in high school and middle school. And I used to just absolutely love it. My grandparents lived in this very small town. I'm talking like at the time it was like maybe three stoplights, but in reality, like that was, that was a recent development. I mean, we still had people walking through town and horses. So it was a very small town in the mountains and we'd call it El Campo because like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Just how rural it was. Um, it's called Sidra Puerto Rico and it was, um, it's a lovely little town because it's up in the mountains. So, you know, despite it being in the Caribbean, like it was actually very temperate in terms of the, the weather. You could live there without AC and my fam- my family did. They, they did not have AC. And so, you know, it's always interesting going because like it's like a little bit of an adjustment. Like you, there are certain things that like you, you pick up that like you can't put leave bread out you can't leave salt out you have to put it in the fridge because otherwise it's gonna the humidity is just gonna destroy it (laughs) uh yeah i i have family that lives in el campo too my aunt and uncle recently and by recently i mean a few years ago they built a house in ibonito and i got to stay there just this past december like literally the week before the earthquake swarm started and like before covid i was there for Christmas and we spent a few days at my uh, my aunt and uncle's house there and also my great aunt has a house um, a little bit further up like she she's like pretty much at the top of the mountain my great aunt and she and her house has this wraparound veranda and you just see the steep decline of, of the mountains there oh my gosh El Campo in Puerto Rico like you, like you have to go there like fine like, it's fine if you do all the touristy stuff all the touristy t- stuff is fun but like you have to, you need to, if you don't have a friend who like lives there, you need to find some reason to just go there and spend at least a night or two there. Because it's like you said, it's honestly one of the most beautiful places I, I've been to, like a, a tropical mountain landscape. It's, it's amazing. Also, if you're a light sleeper, bring earplugs because the frogs there, which is what Puerto Rico is known for, the coqui. Are very loud. I mean, especially after it rains, and in particularly different times of the year, it rains every day. So it's they're pretty much mm-hmm. out every night, and it's like cookie, cookie, oh yeah, cookie, like all night. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. Like, it's so much louder than in the city too. And in, in San Juan, I mean, you hear you hear them everywhere. But like, you go to El Campo, and yeah, it's like turned up several decibels oh yeah because you're you're definitely likely going to have one right outside your window so that's probably where it's coming from and those things are as loud as a car alarm (laughs) (laughs) They, they really are oh my gosh when i was little and i would go to visit puerto rico i thought and I knew that the like oh yeah the coquis they're they're these little frogs but i thought that their actual name was cookie because (laughs) because you know, I grew up really with English as my first language, although technically when I was a baby, I, when I started speaking, my some of my first words were Spanish because I had a nanny who only spoke Spanish who took care of me for like my first couple years of life. But by the time I was a little bit older and I was going going to Puerto Rico and people were talking about Coqui and I, I thought that they were like that the name of the frog was Cookie and just like people were saying Coqui because I was there, there was just their accent coming through. So... That is incorrect. They are actually, it, it's spelled how it sounds. Love that. It's, it is spelled how it sounds. Wow. 
Love that about Spanish. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very, 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 uh, was it onomatopoeia? Like where it's, it, they named it directly after the sound. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, no, but I've actually really missed um, Puerto Rico. I haven't been since summer of 2015. Um, mm. And part of it was my grandparents moved back to Florida. So I didn't have immediate family there that I could always stay with. But even so, like I still have a lot of extended family. But I think really what what changed was um, I came out as trans in 2016. And a lot of people don't know this, but Puerto Rico has uh, one of the highest murder rates in the world for trans women. And I think this year has been, has exemplified that. Mm-hmm. I believe there's been four or five trans women killed on the island. Um and so the, the violence is, is exceptionally high and I am honestly scared to death to go back. Like I really am. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be really tough. And so with, with that though, like that, that experience, what is your sense of your Latinx identity and what helps you to connect with it? And for you, how did your coming out process as trans did how did that either change that relationship or um you know make certain things better make other things worse like what is that like for you yeah i mean it's it's complex cuz i think growing up for me like i i was born and raised in tampa so i was already like kind of one degree removed from kind of the puerto rican heritage of not being born on the island. Both my parents were born there and, and mostly raised there. But, you know, I, uh, one of the things I always remember is like all the salsa music growing up, the, the lechon asado, like my family would always make an entire lechon like outside for Christmas and, you know, pernil, arroz con gandule and, and like all, all, all the stuff. So like I grew up in a very traditional Puerto Rican household and it's so much so that like I honestly was very obtuse about American culture until like I was in high school and there would be people wrenching or referencing things and I just wouldn't get it. So, you know, it was a very important part of my culture and, and my heritage and, and how I was brought up. But at the same time, I was very much a black sheep within my family. When I kind of started coming into my own in high school, I played guitar. I got into metal and punk music. I started skateboarding. And those were just things that like my, the, like all the Puerto Rican kids just didn't do. And particularly people in my family, like everybody in my family, they wore like Sean John or South Pole and like, you know, the latest Jordans and baggy clothes. And I'm sitting there wearing skinny jeans and like a ripped up shirt playing guitar <laughs> and skateboarding yeah. around. And like, you know, my family is like, what is, are, are you going through some kind of phase? And, um, <laughs> you know, I was just, I, I had a very independent sense. Like nobody in my family plays musical instruments or anything. And so I was already kind of ostracized and I felt like it kind of pushed me out of my like Latinx heritage a bit because it felt like, okay, all my family is very much like what's going on. Like this isn't what Puerto Rican kids do that you're acting like a white kid. And then when, um, you know, I'd go to school, all the like white kids would be like, what are you know, like ostracizing me on, on that end. And I'd be called like a mocha Oreo because I was like this like Latinx kid who is like into like all these 
you know, stereotypically white things. And so it was, it was kind of a very lonely sense in trying to find myself. And, uh, you know, and so I think I kind of drifted away from a lot of my like Latinx roots in my later teenage years and college years. And I think actually when I came out, like there was that kind of terrifying phobia of like, you know, the, the machismo, the machista culture. And, and, you know, I didn't honestly didn't know what my family would do. My, I was very close with my parents. I'm an only child. And, um, you know, I wrote them a letter and I was, I didn't know how they were going to take it. Unfortunately, um, they're very accepting. Uh, my parents have been, you know, overwhelmingly supportive of me, but that was a huge leap of faith. And I did it two weeks after the bar exam, like after I graduated law school. And, you know, I was just like, you know, I've graduated law school, I have a job. And it, worst case, if they disown me, I'm self-sufficient, and I will be able to be fine on my own. And fortunately, that, you know, my worst fears didn't come to pass. But, you know, there's definitely been some growing pains. And I think, you know, one of the first things that my dad got when like, you know, the, the news around the family, el, el chisme, or, you know, the, the mm, gossip yeah. got around mm. is my dad received a call from my aunt um, in New Jersey and like asking him if he was suicidal because he had a trans daughter. I mean, it was like just this <laughs> like really oh, up wow. sense that they thought like in their mind, it's literally th- that is the worst thing in the world. It's so bad to have a trans child that it, you would be suicidal. Like it just, you know, that's the kind of sense of culture. And so like, I've never really been that close with my extended family and, you know, and so it, that it's been tough dealing with that. But I think part of co- the coming out process, I've actually grown closer to my Latinx roots I think in particular, because it's been so wrapped up with my own professional identity. Like when I came out, I started working at New York Legal Assistance Group at the LGBTQ Law Project. So I started doing immigration law, representing trans immigrants from Central America. And so I really got a chance to really reconnect with not just my like Latinx roots, but also queer Latinx folks through my clients and the community that I was able to help and represent. And so I was speaking Spanish every day for the first time since I was probably like six or seven years old. And, you know, I was speaking Spanish with my clients all the time and then really kind of gaining this sense of, of you know, what it means to be a trans Latina uh, woman. And so it was like, you know, I, 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 you know, would start cooking and I'd put on some old like gran combo or like some old salsa that my dad would always have on and i'm like and i feel nostalgic for it now and it's you know i'm not a nostalgic person usually but you know i i I do remember it especially like i miss some of the traditions of like you know cooking a whole pernil or or all of those things and living in new york city in brooklyn can't exactly roast a whole pig on the roof of my apartment so (laughs) (laughs) i mean you could try. I'm sure I'm sure other things have stranger things have probably happened in Brooklyn, I'm sure than oh, yeah. roasting a whole pig. Um, <laughs> so I really connected with what you were saying about, you know, you're a teenager and you're into like metal and you're like this hot topic kid, basically, maybe even edgier than hot topic. But just this whole thing of like, you know, quote, not fitting into 
your ethnicity and kind of liking these things that are really strongly associated with white kids or or white culture. Because I kind of feel like, you know, I was into I got into like anime and like I wished I could shop at Hot Topic. My my mom didn't necessarily let me, but like, believe me, in, in my soul, my inner soul, I was wearing those pants with the 2000 chains and zippers like oh my gosh Trip pants. That was, <laughs> yes yes I wanted I like secretly wanted a pair of those but I never got them and I never like even asked for them I don't think so but I, I think it's super important though for for folks for just like not non-white folks to just kind of say like hey yeah I'm into hardcore stuff I'm into like this you know I mean, I think of it especially in terms of like the music scene and some of the some of my favorite bands are like definitely that post hardcore type of stuff where like, you know, yeah, you see a lot of white folks around and there is kind of this idea that only white people like that music and people of color and people of other ethnicities aren't in those scenes. So I guess what are what are your thoughts on that? Like just kind of having lived into that and experienced that. Cause like while while I kind of get it, I also have this privilege of I, I often get read as a white person. So I haven't I didn't necessarily face that same thing where people were like questioning my interest and stuff. So I guess like do you have do you have like more particular thoughts about inclusion in these types of scenes like is it what was it like and has it shifted at all in your opinion yeah you have a lot of complex feelings about it i just remember i'd say in particular just falling in love with with the hardcore scene i think that's really where i like just immediately found a place for myself so bands like the Devil Wars Prada, Under Oath, Chiodos, like this whole post-hardcore scene that just really drove me. It was kind of also like the Vans Warped Tour scene, I think is what a lot of people were into. And I also got into some heavier stuff. Like I always dabbled in a bit of Cradle Filth and um, uh, was the other one, Suicide Silence, and got into a bit of Deathcore and stuff like that. But, you know, that that's really what I, I, I really loved. And, you know, at the same time, like, I would still go from that and then go put on Tego Calderon. Like it wasn't like, Mm -hmm. you know, this mutually exclusive thing. Um, And so it was really tough, you know, and and part of me was like, you know, I did, you know, not necessarily shop at Hot Topic because my mom would not buy me a pair of those trip pants ever. Like, (laughs) I I don't, I don't, you know, pretty sure I would have to, to ransom her into doing that. But I did buy all my band tees at Hot Topic and, so I'd go to PacSun and get like a ton of skinny jeans and that would call it a day. I was just thinking about like, there's nothing more 2000s than the than going to PacSun, Hot Topic and Spencer's. Like the like if you were a teenager in the 2000s, that is just that's just what happened. And I, I was just I was just having a little trip down memory lane. <laughs> yeah, no, that that was it. That was and occasionally like if I couldn't find a good pair of uh, skinny jeans, I'd like sneak into Aeropostale or Hollister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, did you ever listen to Me Without You? Yeah, I got into them because they did a song with one of my favorite bands. I actually have a poster of it in my, my office here now, uh, Norma Jean. 
Yes, yes. They did uh, Memphis uh, Will Be Laid to Waste because they both came out of the post-hardcore Atlanta mm-hmm. scene um, mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. I love Me Without You. They are literally my favorite band. And I am so sad that COVID canceled everything because they were going to do a farewell tour of, uh, well, they were going to do a farewell tour in general. But before that, they were going to do a brother-sister album tour. And then they were going to do like a final farewell tour. And that's just been completely postponed. I saw them play with Thrice. They did a tour with Thrice um, earlier this year, which feels like 10,000 years ago. And it was so good. They're always so good. I've seen them like four times. I love, I love Me Without You. Now you've got oh the my gosh. song, Oh Porcupine, stuck in my head. Like, Oh Porcupine. I can't even remember the rest of the lyrics, but it's like, I had the like the song stuck in my head now. In darkness, the light shines. That is a quote from scriptures. I love how they weave in so many just spiritual, religious, theological, literary themes in the lyrics. Aaron Wise, like, honestly, he is my favorite poet. I I just love for years, I've listened to this band, and I'm still gaining new understandings of what is actually going on in their music in and in the songs. It's just fantastic. I read Rumi because I wanted to understand all the references. Like, this is how much I like this band. It's, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because like in the mid 2000s, there was just this explosion of Christian hardcore. So you had like- There really was. It was like the Devil Wears Prada, August Burns Red, Under Oath was kind of like the big like- kind of on top in terms of that scene but like every band had to be like christian hardcore and it was kind of the craziest thing because like also you had these undercurrents of straight edge and i remember identifying as straight edge and it was like i'm 16 years old how much badge could i really get into (laughs) like you know oh i'm not gonna have I'm not going to drink it. I'm not going to do drugs, but I'm like 16. Like I, I was a sheltered kid. So it was like, not exactly the most, <laughs> it was exactly the most brave thing to do saying, well, I'm straight edge, but it, it was really interesting. And then now seeing those bands now, some of the ones that have still continued, a lot of them have kind of dropped it. And I think part of it was, it was fashionable. It was trendy. I think one of the biggest ones was as I lay dying as part of the, the new wave of American metal and they're doing uh, that kind of metalcore style. And then the lead singer gets arrested for trying to hire a hitman to kill his wife. And it's like, okay, I think a lot of this was very much just a fad and a, a trend. I can't explain why as something, I guess maybe in that time frame, somehow like where most of your friends are probably not religious, being into a religious band that's also like a hardcore band was somehow more rebellious. I honestly don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm thinking back on it now and now I didn't start getting into these bands until I was entering college. So I wasn't quite there in the middle of the 2000s, but I I mean I definitely grew up in that youth group culture where like, you know, And I think it comes from this place where, like, you grow up in this environment where you're kind of discouraged away from secular stuff. So there's this tendency to make Christian versions of things. And so probably this scene 
um, was sort of born out of a lot of young people being in that culture, but at the same time, wanting to be a little bit more honest about the darker sides of spirituality, a spirituality that you can feel sometimes. One of the things that I appreciate about bands, um, my, my like three favorite bands, Showbread, Me Without You, and Thrice. I don't know if you've listened to Showbread, but what I especially appreciate about Showbread is like, yeah, like they're, they're very ideologically interesting. Obviously, a Christian band, later their anarchism comes in, which is fascinating. But the imagery and some of the the themes in their music, it, it talks about some really dark and heavy stuff. And that is just not something that we were necessarily getting when we would say go to our youth retreats and have worship time. A lot of the contemporary Christian music that we would hear in our, in our churches was certainly more of this like upbeat, Jesus is my boyfriend type of thing, which is fine. That that can totally be a vibe. But I think there was also this hunger for something that got into the depths a little bit more. And this hardcore thing just kind of came out of that. And even, you know, all these years later, and I'm still listening to these bands. And to me, like, honestly, the this music was kind of one of the beginning pieces of my own sort of uh, deconstruction and reconstruction of Christianity um, and kind of where I am now. So it, it is it is a lot. But I, I also think that it I can kind of trace how it makes sense that this entire subculture emerged and was entirely a thing and it and the thing is too is like it's legitimately good music yeah. <laughs> like it's it's awesome music well i think also and some of it is just like i mean i grew up i would say adjacent to the kind of youth group culture within the kind of protestant tradition or uh non-denominational tradition because I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and that that was huge. All of, there was all these like non-denominational churches that have all these youth groups. And when you look at the history of some of these bands, like they, a lot of them got started in their church groups. And I think that mm-hmm. you know, where else can you get a drum set and a place to rehearse and practice? It's just right. You know, some of that probably plays a role. Right, and I I love too how you get things like Me Without You, which is a band that. They're big for their scene, but so many people have never heard of them. But they're really close friends with Paramore because Haley Williams is like a big Me Without You fan. And they and they've done like Haley Williams has been on featured on Me Without You's albums and they've done a couple shows together and things like that. And that's really super cool because I've totally met people who are like, oh, like I love Paramore. And they're, you know, they didn't grow up adjacent to this whole like evangelical contemporary Christian scene so they don't know me without you but they know paramore and i'm like did you know that paramore is friends with my favorite band that you probably haven't heard of and it's just always like it's kind of this unlikely these unlikely collaborations that happen because people who grew up in that contemporary christian environment were all like oh my gosh we have this very specific awkward experience and we completely relate to it and now we've deconstructed it to a certain extent, maybe we've completely stayed in it. Maybe we've completely left. So I, I just, I just love that stuff. I just can gush about it all day long. Same. <laughs> so, given 
that, what are your experiences with spirituality and religion? Did you grow up with any type of tradition? And, you know, where are you now with that? And what does that shift look like for you? Oh, yeah, that's it's been quite a, a long, winding path. We're here for it. <laughs> so my family is Catholic. They were both very traditional Catholic, uh, my mom and my dad. And um, my mom went to a Catholic high school in Rochester, New York, was taught by nuns, the the whole nine yards. And so when time came to put me in school, for whatever reason, my mom just thought that you just don't put your kid in public school, you're supposed to put them in a private religious school. I don't know why they didn't, my mom didn't think to put me in the Catholic school, but she decided to put me in the kind of Southern Baptist school. I think my first uh, element or kindergarten that I went to was Grace Christian School in Valrico, Florida. And they actually didn't have an age cutoff. They actually had a test in, which I'm a huge proponent of. So I actually started kindergarten at four years old and spent most of my kindergarten year as a four-year-old. So I was the youngest in my class. So that, that was kind of my real introduction to religion was this kind of structured school experience. And honestly, I, I did not fit in as well. They didn't really know what to do with me. I had ADHD diagnosed at five years old. I was like a little hellion constantly getting into trouble as my mom always jokes when she would come to pick me up uh in the afternoon it wasn't were you put in the corner today it was how many times were you put in the corner and (laughs) the, the teachers didn't know what to do with me and so by the time I got to like third or fourth grade I was you know, I, I always hate saying this because I always feel so like conceited and narcissistic saying it, but in a sense, it kind of helps explain why I had so many issues. I was oftentimes the smartest kid in the room. And, you know, we were, they would teach multiplication tables and I would pick it up in like less than a minute. And then we're now spending two weeks learning long division or multiplication tables. And I already learned it what else am I going to do with my time? And so I'd get into so much trouble uh, all the time because I was just bored. I didn't know what else to do. And they being a small parochial school, they didn't have like gifted programs or advanced placement or anything like that. And so finally my mom was like, you can't be in here anymore. Like this is causing me too much stress. I'm like always getting in trouble. And my mom had taken me to a bunch of therapists and psychologists and they were like, they need to be put in, you know, more advanced courses. And so I got moved over to public school, which actually had these programs. And uh, so that was kind of my first, you know, moving away from religion. But, you know, I look back at it now and some of the things that they just like would teach, I mean, particularly in the Southern Baptist tradition, I'm just like, just like, huh? You know, I'm just like kind of looking back and, I was pretty much a smart ass most of the time when I was a kid. I was very shy, but at the same time, like I actually read the Bible cover to cover in third grade and I would ask questions and half the time they didn't want me to ask certain questions. Um, and it made for very awkward conversations in class. Um, I think if you actually read, literally read the Bible cover to cover, there's a lot of things that are nowhere near appropriate for a eight-year-old to be reading. Um, 
And so, you know, that, that was kind of where it came from, from my end. And then, you know, kind of my, my other big development was in, in eighth grade when finally my mom was like, okay, well, we're Catholic. So you actually should be going to catechism and actually being confirmed and having your first communion. So she put me in catechism courses. And I remember this was around 2003, right when the Iraq war started. And ironically, my catechism teacher had the same last name as me. That's how I always remember her. Um, and so it was right around the start of the Iraq war. And we're, she had us start writing letters to the Marines of like the first division or something serving in Iraq. And her brother was serving as a, a military uh, person and are serving in the Marines. And I was just sitting there like, why are we doing this? We're supposed to be learning like catechism and learning about like Catholic teaching, not writing letters to soldiers. We shouldn't even be in this war. And my teacher got really upset and she's like, well, we're supposed to support the troops. And then, you know, I pulled the ultimate trump card to, you know, if any any Catholics are, are listening, you know, the minute you invoke the Pope, it, it's, it's you know, the, the big trump card. And I was like, the Pope is against the war. Why are we doing this? And, you know, she couldn't argue against the Pope. And I guess that's my early kind of inclinations towards being a lawyer, always knowing when to appeal to authority. Um, <laughs> And so she sent me out of the room and kicked me out. And so it was just more of me asking inconvenient questions and things that people didn't want to answer and, you know, and always challenging authority. And I think the next real like formative experience was around when I was 15 and um, my dad had a really bad work accident. He uh, lost his arm in a work accident. And around that time, like he became disabled and was at home a lot and was trying to figure out something, you know, to do and find spirituality again. And my, I think it's my grandfather's cousin, somebody really extended family member was part of this non-denominational church, but it was very close to Pentecostal, like the speaking in tongues, the kind of, you know, like four-hour services on a Sunday, services on Wednesday evening. I mean, just constant. And, you know, they're very warm and welcoming. Like, they took my dad on a retreat. They went to this, like, cabin in North Carolina and all these things. And with my dad being, you know, having this life-altering experience and becoming disabled and losing a limb in a work accident, you know, I could see how it was very inviting, um, unfortunately, that was kind of my peak rebellious years when I was like getting into Slipknot and starting to get like all like anti-religious and, you know, and then my, all of a sudden my dad is forcing me to go to three or four hour services on a Sunday. And up to that point, we actually never went to church. I'd been going to these religious schools, but never actually gone to church. And if at most we'd go once on a while to Catholic mass, which like that was pretty straightforward. It was 45 minutes, you know, there was a pretty central teaching that was universal. I understood that, that I, I got along with, but you know, the, these four hour services where it's like singing and singing and then, you know, like these rage sermons. I remember this one sermon about how like Halloween was invented by the devil. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, no, it wasn't. 
It was started. Right. It, it, it's a pagan holiday. You know, it, 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 and it's just like this yeah. kind of fire and brimstone teaching. And I'm just like, oh God. And I would just go yeah. out into the parking lot and listen to Slipknot or whatever, you know, edgy thing I thought I could listen to. Right. And it led to a lot of uh, tension between me and my parents. And I, at that point was when I was like, you know what? I'm atheist. Like, I just, I don't believe in any of this anymore. This is ridiculous. Like, this is uneducated. The pastor's driving around in a goddamn Cadillac. Like, he's obviously making a ton of money and then teaching these moralistic preachings that just, like, don't resonate with anything. And so, you know, I would argue with my parents every Sunday. I was like, I don't want to go. And then if they're like, well, you need to go. And I'm like, you know, turn into really heated arguments. And then like, you know, I'd put on my shorts and they're like, well, you need to wear pants. And I'm like, it's 95 degrees in Florida. The hell I'm wearing pants. And and they're like, well, you need to dress nice for church. And I'm like, you know, isn't God the one that's like, come as you are? Like, you know, I don't think God's going to judge me any different for how I dress going to church. It's more for your appearances. And, you know, it's, my parents hate it because I would always out argue them. And like, I don't know, you know, the old cliche is that like, Oh, if you're good at arguing, you know, you should be a lawyer. That's absolutely not the case. But, you know, I, I just happened to be good at making arguments and it would piss my parents off to no end. And that's really where I just ended up like falling away from religion completely. and just becoming very um, disillusioned with it all. Yeah, I I think a lot of people have a very similar experience and come away with it with a varying degree of responses. Tons of people absolutely go the atheistic route. I mean, especially since, you know, it, it's really unfortunate that you were somebody at such a young age, you'd read the whole Bible cover to cover, you had questions about it. Like there, there was something that some way that you were engaged with it and the adults in your life who are supposed to be part of your spiritual community and who are supposed to or should have had a responsibility to help develop that in you instead responded in this kind of closed off way. It's just such a, it's so unfortunately common. Whereas, you know, I feel grateful in the church community that I'm in now as an adult, our youth, our teenagers have no issues expressing that like, well, I don't know if I believe in all of this that that is that is in here. I don't know if I believe everything. And they they can just they can just say that in front of the whole congregation and everyone's like, all right, yeah, like that's part of your journey. Whereas, you know, if if I said that in my church when I was a teenager, the church that I was going to, I would have probably like, we probably would have formed a little prayer circle and I probably would have like gotten some messages from my youth leaders saying like, hey, like, you know, how are you, how are you doing with your struggling doubts with God? Like, you know, here's the, all this certainty that you need for it. It's just, it's just a completely, and I'm not saying that like what I had as a teenager was bad necessarily. It was, I have a complex relationship with it. But there are some things that I think did benefit me in the long run. However, there was still this very much this sense or this kind of fear of, you know, these arguments or these questions that might um, seem to make scripture 
illegitimate or, you know, whatever it might be. And those things weren't necessarily talked about that much or or addressed in any type of real way. And I think that's just part of part of the problem with so many well so many Christian communities is like there is isn't a compassionate response to the person who has read everything and has these has these challenging questions. And the, if the response to that challenge is like this sort of hostility or, or this closed offedness, instead of, you know, I don't know, maybe admitting that you don't know everything or, you know, saying that like, yeah, that's a that's a really weird thing that I don't know what to do with, but we can still be in community with each other. Like, oh my gosh, like if only more churches were like that. But I think too is like that whole environment of experiencing that hostile response or maybe hostile might be the appropriate word or it might be too strong in some cases, but experiencing that response is part of why there, I think there's just this big swell now in formerly evangelical people being like, yeah, we grew up this way and now we're completely rejecting it, especially given our political and cultural climate now. It's like so many people are really tearing down everything spiritually that we were taught growing up. And some of us are putting the pieces back together in these really nuanced ways. And other people are like, I can't connect with this. I can't be about this at all anymore. And it's it's just a fascinating, um, a fascinating development to see, especially among queer folks. So I'm wondering for, for you and your identities, what is that? I, I mean, I, is that a part of how you're thinking or, how, or your relationship with any type of spirituality too? Like, is is that part of, of the puzzle or is it just kind of like, you know, not really something that you find is connected? Yeah. I mean, just to mirror back some of what you're talking about, even just like getting that engagement from adults, like as a, a questioning kid, you know, I think a lot of it wasn't just necessarily related solely to religion, but it was very much like, you know, I I am a huge science nerd. I absolutely love reading about theoretical physics. I like still watch all these series called PBS Space Time. And I was, you know, when I got home from school, most kids would probably put on like, you know, the latest like anime or whatever. I'd go on and put Discovery Channel and watch like a Stephen Hawking special. And so I'd watch these things and it's like the universe is 80 plus billion light years across. And, you know, the earth is so far removed from the center of the universe. Like, you know, it, for me, it, it was like, how does any of this make any sense in terms of, you know, this grand universe? And I'd have all these questions and obviously I never really got answered because I, you know, it would just be dismissed. Oh, well, the universe is not really that big or, you know, or the earth isn't that old. And I'm like, well, we, we can prove it. We have, you know, all these scientific methods to prove all these things, you know, and it, for me, I, I always sound the Catholic tradition to be a little bit better in this regard. Cause I think they, they tend to have viewed like logic and reason as a gift from God and as one to, you know, utilize as a gift. And what we can figure from our logic and reason is, is something that we should do. And, and I think 
a lot of people don't know it, but like the Catholic tradition officially accepts the theory of evolution and believes that the Big Bang is actually like what occurred. And they're very accepting of new scientific developments. But that that was um, in particular, what was hard for me is, is like being so into science. And, you know, and then I really didn't even discover my queerness until when I was you know, 25 is when I finally came out to myself as trans. Before that, I identified as a cis hetero guy, although in hindsight, it kind of, all the warning signs were there. When I was like six or seven years old, I would sneak into my mom's closet and put on her dress and high heels and put on makeup when, you know, they were out grocery shopping or something. And then like literally everyone I ever dated in high school and college later came out as queer or lesbian. And so (laughs) it was just like, I forget what's the that blue collar comedian that was just like, here's your sign. And it was just, it was constantly <laughs> like that now, like hindsight is 2020, but it was very, very apparent. And I think for me, you know, I think that experience that I had when I was a teenager pretty much turned me off from religion permanently. And I still haven't really found anything close to it. I think there was a period in my, when I first started coming out as trans where I started growing closer to some of my Jewish friends and thought about converting to Judaism and realized that like, no, I don't think that's something I actually really want to do. And then, you know, there had been kind of complex. And so for me, I think the struggle has been in particular seeing the damage that religion has done to queer people and queer folks. I think in particular in my profession where I represented survivors of trafficking, survivors of intimate partner violence, and asylum seekers when I hear about their experiences as children in their na- or their countries of origin and the extent of the abuse that they suffered. You know, part of it is cultural. I, I don't think it's all like inherently just a religious thing. I think it's a uh feedback loop where the culture informs the religion and the religion informs the culture. And that's why like you can have religious societies in some places being tolerant of certain things and other religious societies, not like Iran is actually surprisingly, I I would qualify this, but progressive with trans folks, they allow people to transition and actually pay for gender confirming surgery in, in Iran, but homosexuality is still outlawed. So there's like these weird, you know, things, but kind of going, getting back to my original point is I really saw people that were just dealing with so much trauma as a result of the experiences that they had as coming of age, as queer folks and cultures, and that were extremely repressive and did not accept them for who they were. And I think that just kind of informed it even more for me that it's just like, you know, I don't know if I could ever get back into anything like this. And the struggle that I find is that I tend to be, I don't want to say I'm cynical, but I would say that I'm not, I'm very skeptical of anything towards spirituality or religion. And I tend to find that I have a hard time not sinking into nihilism because at the end of the day, like, you know, if if the universe is 80 billion light years across and, and we're just one of over 100 billion people that have lived and ultimately the universe is destined for heat death, like what in the grand scheme of things does anything matter? 
like not at the end of the day, like almost nothing matters. And so you, you still have to center yourself and figure out, okay, well, my life is still important. The people around me are still important. I'm going to make meaning out of this regardless and do the best I can to help people because that's what I think is what's important. And so, you know, that's what I found brought fulfillment to me, like helping folks, even though like deep down, I'm like, nothing really matters. So it's kind of hard. And that's in in certain terms of a spiritual sense, that's where I'm constantly like at with myself where it's like, nothing matters, but I still find meaning and I still find enjoyment out of helping people and making a meaningful life for myself. So, you know, I think that that's the struggle that I have. And, you know, I don't even know how that ties into religion at this point, but that's where I'm at. Yeah, that's, that's valid. And, and of course, you know, as you're mentioning nihilism, I'm, and we're talking about, you know, hardcore bands, I'm like, Showbread has an album about that. And I say that jokingly, no, no, sir, nihilism is not practical is like their first, no, they're, I think it's, well, it's, it's the album where they really broke out. It came out in 2004. That's a good one. Lots of screaming, but uh, more, more seriously, you know, that's, that's such an honest place to, to be frankly, because you have your experiences and you put a lot of thought into you know, what it is that you believe or don't believe. And so I'm, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm really curious to hear what, what do you think that um, religious organizations would need to do? Even the progressive ones that the United Church of Christ is like the most progressive Protestant denomination. You know, I'm sitting here, like I'm, I'm hearing everything that you're saying and I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, like we're, I'm really aligning with, with a lot of, of what you're saying and I'm not really, I'm not balking at it at all, but I'm, I'm coming now from a very uh, progressive tradition. I, I'm, so I'm just curious as to, you know, what in your opinion would need to happen within religion to either get get you personally back to it or just in general to get people that are in a similar place as, as you to get to rebuild that trust? What do you think needs to happen? Oof. That's a hard one. <laughs> it, it, it really is. But, I, you know, this is this is a thought experiment. So, you know, we can feel free to just you know, say, say whatever it is you think needs to happen. Cause this is a question that comes up a lot in, um, in religious circles. And I think, I mean, everybody has a hard time answering it, but we're also, we also tend to all be religious people who maybe have had some bad experiences in the past and have done deconstruction or whatever, but we're still like presently in these communities. So that's why I really want to hear from somebody who, who still isn't. And cause, cause that can just bring some different nuance and some different value to that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I almost, I would say kind of got ripped in a little bit. So in 2017, so I came out in 2016, I had been engaged for a year and I'd been with my ex partner for seven. And after I came out as trans, she broke up with me and then kicked me out. And I went through the worst <laughs> year of my life in 2017. Uh, so in January 18th, I witnessed a fatal hit and run. I was just standing a few feet away. And the way I always describe it is 
it, it was horror movie levels of gore that I witnessed because it was somebody killed by a semi. And so I was deeply traumatized. And, you know, two days later, Trump was inaugurated. And then three days later, my grandfather was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And at the same time, my ex was broke up with me and was kicking me out of the apartment. And all of that, trying to figure out, you know, my path forward as an immigration attorney under the Trump administration and also figuring out my transness. And it was just this year from hell. And so the roommates that I moved in with after the fact were both members of the Universal Unitarian Church or Universalist. I'm sorry, I, I'm probably butchering that. Um, Unitarians. Unitarians, yes. And they're, they're a member of the congregation here in Brooklyn and they invited me to go and I went and, you know, it was really good. I mean, sermon, like they were from that particular sermon, they were teaching from the indigenous perspective and they had an indigenous person speak to their experiences and spirituality. And I thought it was really great how they pulled from all these different teachings and all these different traditions and all these different aspects and realizing that you can learn things from everybody rather than this like closed mindedness, but the structure of sitting there and, and like this kind of, you know, church setting for an hour, it just, uh, it, it just kind of awakened all those like traumas that I've like had when I was 15, you know, being forced to go and sit for hours in, you know, the, this like, Pentecostal church. And so it's hard to overcome it. I just really didn't want to be a part of that. And so for me, I think religion has always played a part in building community. And it's always been the centerpiece for a lot of the communities in not just the United States, but around the world. I think it's the centerpiece for how we organize ourselves and find community and others outside of our family. And I think for most of the past few decades, it's more common that people find those connections now in things that are more secular. They find things in their Dungeons and Dragons groups or their online Twitch stream or any other kind of community. And so I think there's a lot more ways that folks are finding community in secular activities. And so I think it's really hard for churches to be able to compete with that and offer that same level of community. And I think a lot of the more progressive churches are trying, but they're coming, they're hitting a wall with trying to get folks that aren't traumatized by, you know, these experiences as as a kid. And I think that keeps a lot of people away. I mean, I can't begin to say that I have the the solution for any of this. For me, it's like I just don't find value in it, and I, you know, I don't, you know, if, if someone else does, then that's amazing. I'm happy for them. Like, I just think like you have to also meet people where they're at, and I think a lot of the more progressive traditions, like Unitarians, have have really done a great job of it. But I think at the same time, it's just it's hard to really build on that sense of community. And I think that's why, despite a lot of traditions becoming more progressive, the evangelical and more kind of militant fundamentalist churches are able to continue because they are insular and they basically reinforce their own sense of community and, and insulate themselves. 
and you know and then outside of that you have you know the kind of how should i say it the kind of televangelists the the people that that are just in it for a buck and i think that that has been a huge part of it when i like going back to my own experience when i was 15 like the pastor driving a cadillac the main reason my parents stopped going wasn't the sermons it wasn't what was being taught it wasn't that they didn't find a community it's that they were asking for 10 percent tithing and my mom was like hell no <laughs> i'm not giving you all of my money like we were already in a hard spot with my dad being disabled and not having a full income. And then for them to ask for 10%, my mom was like, no, and she, she put a stop to it. And I think she was also really like not um, comfortable because she grew up in a Catholic church and then going and seeing people speaking in tongues and just kind of flopping on the floor and doing all these crazy things. And you're just like, what? Like, this isn't like anything I've ever been, you know, this is, you know, I'm used to going and having communion and all those things. And so, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a existential question. And I think that the, the, the biggest religious group is non-religion. And I think you still ask people how they identify. They'll still say, oh, I'm a Christian, but when's the last time they've been to church? And it's probably been years and they're not part of any kind of organized religion. And honestly, what I I've seen is this kind of like pan religious spirituality, I would say, particularly this being replaced with astrology, particularly in the queer community. I think astrology is the new religion in the queer community. And for me, absolutely. (laughs) And for me, I'm like, get the out of here. Like nothing has to do with anything. Like, first of all, there's 13 uh, signs because they left one out. There's 13 months in the original calendars when they invented it. Two, these things are off by an entire month because they were devised 3,000 years ago when the Earth was in a different place in the solar system and the solar system was a different place in the galaxy. And three, like, like, it, like it just, you know, when, for me, it's just like I start dismantling it and my, like, critical mind just starts going at it. And so it's, like, immediately, and I'm just, like, Every time I meet, I'm in a group of queer folks that are like, oh, that's such a Sagittarius thing or that's such a Virgo thing. And I'm like, what? Like, I, this is a different language to me. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. I, okay. So I have had to like learn basic astrology just so I can understand what other queer folks are talking about sometimes. Because like I had, I just went and I like did my star chart or whatever, not because I mean, some of the stuff is like, Oh yeah, that that's pretty accurate to me or whatever. But you know, sometimes you just, you're just in a conversation and if you can just say, Oh yeah, well my moon is in Aquarius. So I'm, this totally makes sense for me. That can sometimes become a shortcut to explaining an entire facet of your personality without having to put the energy into actually explaining it. But I mean, yeah, like I, you know, I don't really, I don't keep up with it or like really take it super, super seriously, but I definitely have had to become very literate in it in order to just be able to connect better to that community. Yeah. And I oftentimes find myself a little ostracized because it's, it's taken as almost a given. If you're in the queer community, you're into astrology and I'm just like, yeah, nope. (laughs) I'm actually more into Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, Stephen Hawking and astronomy, but okay. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, that, Gosh, that opens up 
just another thread that I always think about this potential ostracization, I can't say that word, um, within the queer community because like, for example, you just said, you know, you're not, you're not into astrology. So there's some ostracization there. Sometimes as somebody like I, I, I take my Christianity pretty seriously and I, I wear that pretty up front. Um, that's usually one of the one of the first things that people find out about me because I don't have time to waste with people who are going to completely reject uh, knowing me personally or whatever because of either grievances they have with Christianity in particular or unresolved trauma that they haven't been able to work through because of religion. And I'm not saying this to discount those experiences, but I definitely have had experiences where I'm among other queer folks and or like talking to some other queer folks. And there is just this hostility that comes through, even if I'm just talking about like if I'm being nerdy about my religion and not necessarily I'm not having a conversation to convert anybody, but I'm having a conversation because I'm like, well, well, these these books were written in this time period and just like kind of being a historical or theological nerd and kind of explaining an idea, so to speak. And I've had ex- experiences where um, or even just that is like kind of met with this hostile response. And I can understand that that hostility can come from a lot of different places. It can come from a lot of deep hurt but but there there definitely is this vibe that you know oh you're you know you're you're queer so your religion is exclusively astrology or any type of neo-paganism and not anything else and i feel like if that becomes too strong of a vibe then that, then that can really become restrictive what what do you think about that yeah i mean i can i definitely understand where you know a lot of the hostility towards religion in any sense i think most of it comes as a shock, I think, for some folks. I think if I think if somebody told me that they are religious, it's it's kind of like whoa, because uh, I just it's so out of the ordinary for me to come across a, a religious person. I don't have anything against anyone as long as like right. you know their beliefs don't have anything against me. Then like to each their own. I'm I, you know like for me, I'm very much like let live and let live like whatever make brings you happiness without hurting anyone else, then like go for it. And so I would never, you know, uh, be upset or, or take anything personal against somebody who's religious or finds, you know, comfort or, or their meaning in that, like, you know, that I'm, I'm actually happy for them. That they're able to find that. And so, you know, I completely understand that, but you know, the, the ostracization within the career community, I think as a, as a religious person, definitely, um, I could see it happening. Granted, although all, most of the Unitarian folks that I met in Brooklyn were pretty much all queer folks. So um, I yeah. think there's there's a broad spectrum. And I think the queer community is broad enough that you get like a a, a pretty good cross section and, and you'll find a good queer community within the religious community as well. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. And that's actually where most of my community connections are. And so, so yeah, like... I- I'm not I'm not at all saying that there's just this one like particular queer community that is hostile toward religion because because now there there really are so many different nuanced spaces that you can find. Absolutely. And and that is certainly true of my experience. And I'm very grateful for that. Yet at the same at the same time, I I definitely have had a couple of 
encounters and and conversations people who won't date me for example like because of that and i i don't blame the individual the person for that by the way what i get mad at is not the person because that that response that they're having is from trauma in, in my in my opinion and i don't know the details of that trauma so there's no way that i'm going to convince them otherwise or, or like or do whatever so what what I when I have that experience when I do experience that kind of hostile vibe I do not I never get mad at the individual person I get mad at the evangelicals and the the way that my faith has been co-opted into this colonizing force that inflicts trauma on people and has been so hateful and and has spouted theology that is responsible for so much physical and spiritual death. That's that's what I get mad at when I when I have those experiences. Even though like also personally, I'm like cuz I'm a person, I'm like I get a little bit sad, but then when my anger sets in, I'm like, "Ah, oh, this this really this um Christian supremacy force, borrowing some language from one of my uh, previous guests on on the show who does a lot of work in dismantling Christian supremacy." That that's my reaction to that when when I when I do encounter that and it's not at all to say that it's like impeding on my life or that it's oppression because it's not it's it's just a thing that happens sometimes and I completely understand where it's coming from even though it also sucks as an individual to be on the receiving end of that if that makes sense right so I want to get into all of the work that you're currently doing, including your political campaign. But I, I mean, you have such an extensive background in all of these different areas. Just tell us all about it, all this work that you're doing. Yeah. So my day job right now is uh, I'm a staff attorney at the Transgender Legal Defense Education Fund. And so what we do is we advance transgender rights through impact litigation. What that means is we bring litigation and cases to help change the law. So a lot of ways that most people are kind of familiar with this is usually like the kind of work that the ACLU does is that they help change the law through these lawsuits. And that's kind of similar work that we do. And so we have three major cases that we're working on. We're suing the Trump administration and the Department of Health and Human Services for trying to repeal protections for trans patients we're suing the state of North Carolina for not providing health care to trans state employees. And we are suing Houston County, Georgia, and the sheriff of Houston County for not providing transition care to their employee, Anna Lang. And beyond that, I do a bit of federal regulatory work, um, writing public comments in opposition to changes that are going to be harmful to the trans community and comments in support of positive changes, although at the federal level, there haven't been very many positive changes for trans rights in the last few years. And so outside of that, I've been you know, incredibly involved in my community. I was the first openly trans person appointed to the community board. And here in New York City, we have these things called community boards. They're kind of pseudo-governmental councils that essentially act as a conduit for communities to organize themselves. They're actual government positions. They're not elected. They're just appointed by the either the borough president or the city council member. And we don't really have any binding authority, but we're able to have committees and we vote and 
discuss on topics that matter to the community. We also get to approve liquor licenses, all kinds of hyper-local issues. And so I've served as the housing committee chair, and I am also the district manager's search committee chair, and I was recently elected to be the secretary of the community board. And so that's one of the things I really enjoy doing, being able to give back to the community. I am 29, but I'm one of the youngest people on the community board, if not the youngest. Um, It tends to be dominated by a lot of older folks, but we've been seeing a lot more energy from the youth. And there's been a lot more younger people being appointed, which is, I find, fantastic because they're part of the community too, and they should have a say and, and get involved. And, you know, beyond that, I've also been, prior to, to my work at TILDEF, I used to work at New York Legal Assistance Group. Um, I think I've mentioned a few times as an immigration attorney. And I primarily worked with the trans-Latina community in Queens. Uh, a lot of you all know this, but Queens has the largest trans-Latina community in probably the world, I would say. I mean, you have so many trans-Latin folks from Central America, South America, Mexico, just all over the kind of Latin American diaspora. And it's just this huge melting pot. And so many have come here because they were not able to come here legally. They oftentimes came undocumented. And so there's all these other issues of being in abusive relationships where their immigration status was used against them, where they're unable to get legal employment and they're facing these kinds of like all different levels of marginalization where they're ostracized in their own immigrant communities because they're trans and then they can't get work because they're undocumented and then they're targets for transphobia from the community writ large. And so they're oftentimes some of the most marginalized folks in, in, in New York city. And so that was a community that I really found joy working with and it was helped helped me to connect with my own Latinx roots. And uh, since then, you know, I, I really connected when I, when I started working at NILAC with um, this woman named Lorena Borjas. And I encourage anyone who hears this to, to look her up. Um, she was really the mother of the trans Latina community in Queens. I mean, this woman was a force of nature. I don't even know any other way to describe her. I mean, most of my clients were referred to me through her. And if I didn't call a client in two weeks, she'd be calling and be like, did you talk to so-and-so? What's going on in her case? And it's like, I can't tell you. It's confidential because it's attorney-client privilege. <laughs> I can't tell you anything. But she didn't care. She's like, you need to call so-and-so. You haven't called them. And I'm like, thank you for letting me know. You know, and but, you know, I really... It, <laughs> In the moment, it seemed kind of like a little annoying, but in hindsight, it's like, you know, wow, she just doesn't take no for an answer. She just didn't stop. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we lost her to COVID uh, right when the pandemic started on March 30th. And her biggest concern, I was texting her in the hospital um, before, you know, she passed away. And, you know, her biggest concern was still her community. She was worried about the other trans Latin women. And I just, you know, she, she just served as such a huge inspiration for me. And, um, you know, I'd always been wanting to run for office and 
I had brought up the idea and really started thinking about it. And then the pandemic hit and I just didn't even know what I like what to do is like, how do I start running a campaign in the middle of a pandemic? And I was going through some really difficult mental health issues in March, particularly because I had lost my friend Lorena and uh, to COVID. And I live on a major road here in Brooklyn, right next to the County hospital and pretty much every five to 10 minutes in late March, early April, there was ambulances going by and just seeing, you know, New York city losing, you know, a thousand people in a few days and just, you know, having tens of thousands of people dying, you just knew exactly what those ambulances meant. And I was just so deeply traumatized by everything. And then the, the black lives matter protest happened and I got deeply involved. I was out there protesting every single day. And on one occasion, I mean, it took me a few weeks to kind of process everything that happened on this day, but my partner, she was pushed back by the police. They rushed us with batons. We were just peacefully marching and she got pushed back and hit her head on a, on the ground. Fortunately, she was okay. But you know, later that same day, I was nearly run over by a police cruiser. This is the same march that was part of that viral video where the police cruiser like pushed back the barricades into the crowd and things were just so crazy that day and and you know being an attorney and, and seeing like how the police had had always harassed and profiled my clients you know it was one thing seeing it through the lens as an attorney where we're taught to like respect the law and uphold the law and have this like respect for authority and then seeing like what it means in practice. And so what I really came across was there was no accountability. You know, I, I am fairly connected as an attorney. You know, I, I know folks at the attorney general's office. I know folks in the governor's office. I know people, I was on the LGBTQ advisory board of the Kings County DA's office. And I was just emailing everybody with video of me nearly getting run over and like, nothing happened, nothing happened. And so I just realized there was just no accountability. And I just came away from that. And I think I mentioned earlier how I had this trauma of um, witnessing a hit and run. Well, being nearly run over just re-triggered all of that. I had to get back on my antidepressants. I had to uh, start therapy again. I was having trouble sleeping. I was having panic attacks again. I mean, it was, it was deeply traumatic and, you know, and, and so, you know, as an attorney, I kept running against the same walls over and over again, like that, you know, you, there's only so much you can do as an attorney. And I realized that there, there needs to be more systemic change that actually meaningfully changes the system, particularly when it comes to policing, but not only that housing in my community. And so, I decided I needed to run for office so I can help actually change these things. And I uh, announced my campaign officially in September. I've been running for about two months. There has never been an openly trans person elected to New York State in any position at any level. So I'm seeking to be the first. And so it's definitely not an easy road. It's been one of the most challenging and hardest things I've ever had to do. But I'm here for it because honestly, we need the change. We need to actually bring a voice to folks that haven't had it. And you know, I'm I'm centering my campaign on bringing accountability to the NYPD, 
funding the people by shifting our priorities away from this carceral approach to actually funding social services and education and legal services that folks can actually be uplifted and not incarcerated and funding healthcare and then making sure that we actually have affordable housing because housing is a human right. And right now we're facing an unprecedented challenge where we're facing an eviction tsunami. And all of this is a policy failure because all of this can be fixed through policy. But unfortunately, we don't have the representation that actually wants to solve these problems. And so I'm hoping to change that and uh, become uh, the first openly trans city council member in New York City. And uh, our election is June 22nd of next year. That sounds amazing. And in my brain, what this means is that you're totally going to win and then you're going to become best friends with AOC. And then both of you are going to do like a presidential ticket in like five or six years or something. And we're going to have two Puerto Ricans in the White House. So I'm speaking, I'm speaking that into existence because, because I, I've been seeing, I've been seeing your just different things that you've posted online on, on Facebook and on Instagram and things like that. And just there, there really is just so much amazing work that you're doing. It is super exciting to see. And, um, and and yeah, I also did see those videos that, that you had posted, um, from your experiences at those black lives matter marches. And I, I mean, like it, it's real folks, like it happened. So it, it's really cool that, you know, you've taken these experiences that you've had and you've gone the route of trying to get into or work within the system. Whereas, that, you know, I feel like a, a lot of people or maybe not a lot of people, but the other response is to say like, you know, don't participate in the system at all, like just tear it completely down and, you know, the, the, the radical side of things. So it, it, it is kind of encouraging to know and, and to see someone like yourself trying to, to push forward and work, get into the existing frameworks to, um, to get things moving. Because I, I feel like sometimes the reaction is, is to just say like, it's all completely corrupt and nothing is ever going to be different. And, you know, all of that. So. Yeah. I I forgot what the exact saying is. It's like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I think that also dovetails with the classic Shirley Chisholm um, quote about bringing your own fold. You know, if you don't have a seat at the table, you bring a folding chair. And, you know, for me, it's like, you know, we, we have like, in particular, uh, this current city councilman here, um, she's term limited out, so I'm not running against her. But, you know, at the height of the protests, she was making these accusations that the protests were being done by white gentrifiers and that they weren't actually being led by people of color and black folks. And it was just so deeply insulting to hear that, like, uh, like just to have all our experiences invalidated in that way from our political leadership. And this was a once in a lifetime opportunity to really effectuate meaningful change. And it just seems like none of it matters and none of it was, was, was taken. And and so for me, it's like, 
you know, there is that radical side to me where it's like, you know, the whole system needs to come down, but realistically, like a lot of people would be hurt by that. I, I think we all have this kind of tear it all down mentality sometimes, but there's a lot of people that rely on the system that, you know, in a way that they need to survive. You're talking about folks that, you know, are in school, folks who have, are getting their health care through the city that are getting their health care, you know, so it's, you know, tearing down the system, you know, what does that actually mean? I think, you know, we actually, ha- like, this is the beautiful thing about democracy. We have the power to completely tear down the system every four years. And today we're, we're, we're on an election day for the general election on November 3rd. And, you know, we have an opportunity to actually, you know, oust the president and actually remove him from office. And that's an incredible power. And I think people become incredibly jaded and cynical about politics and the powers that they have in a democracy. But, you know, I think that's why people need to be engaged. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm running for office is that if we just sit here complaining, but don't actually get anything done, we're not accomplishing anything. You can scream to your blue in the face that you want a revolution and that you want to tear down the system, but it's not going to happen if you don't actually do something. And so for me, I found the most efficient way and the most effective way to be that change is to actually run for office and actually change the system. And if that means like, you know, doing a a gut renovation of the system and, and building it back up brick by brick, then that's what we need to do. But you need to have the power to do that. And the only way you're going to have that is through electoral power. Amazing. Well, where can folks keep up with you and all of this work that you're doing? So this is your chance to drop your social media, drop any place where uh, people can follow you. Yeah, you can follow me. All my social media handles are Esquire. So it's like a portmanteau of queer and Esquire. So E-S-Q-U-E-E-R underscore. And it's for Twitter and Instagram. And you can also go to my website for my campaign, fightforjustice.nyc. Again, it's fightforjustice.nyc. And that'll take you straight to my campaign website. And you can also find my social media from there. And you can, if you're interested in reading more about my policies or uh, being involved in the campaign, you can get connected that way. And if you feel inclined, you can also donate. If you're in New York City, donations are matched eight to one. So a $50 donation turns into $450 if you live in New York City. And it's an incredibly powerful tool to elevate people who traditionally don't have access to the political establishment. So Wonderful. Well, to wrap this up, what is one thing about being Latinx and LGBTQ that you want the rest of the world to understand? Hmm. It's kind of a hard one. I don't have, I think for me, I think, you know, don't be afraid to chart your own, your own path. I think in particular, growing up as somebody who felt ostracized both in my Latinx heritage and within my kind of queer community as well, because metal and hardcore aren't exactly the most popular genres in the queer community either. I think you just have to be unafraid and and chart your own path and, and not be, and not be afraid to be unique. And even if that means like, 
you know, you never come across people that share your love for like that 2006 from first to last song or anything similar to that, but you know, do what you love. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned. I can still have my love for my Latinx roots. I still love making arroz con habichuela and making a pejnil on the holidays, but like, yeah, I'm going to have like, you know, Slipknot playing when I'm making it or, you know, and then I'll switch over to Teo Calderon or Gran Combo. Like I can do whatever I want. And that's honestly the best thing about it. And I think that's what, you know, is the most important thing is just to be yourself. Well, you are certainly doing whatever you want and it is very powerful and it may or may not change the world. I hope it does change the world. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and for just sharing all that you shared with us. It's been a really great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This episode was recorded by me and edited by Storm Miguel Flores. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you're hearing it. To learn more about Proyecto de Gracia y Bienvenida, head over to our Facebook page at UCC Proyecto Bienvenida. I hope you'll join us again for our next Encuentro.